Support comes from Bellingham's Whatcom Museum with its historic Hall of Birds. On May 31st and June 1st, hosting bird taxidermist and museum preservationist Alice Markham for a weekend of events and workshops. Details and tickets at whatcommuseum.org. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke, and I want to be clear Our locally headquartered airline did not deserve this. Alaska Airlines, you didn't die, and you got a cool story. (laughs) That is not fair, and we'll tell you why, and we'll discuss the rest of this week's news as well with my panel of local journalists, KUOW's politics reporter, David Hyde. Hiya, David. Hey, Bill. Political analyst and contributing columnist, hi, Joni Balter. Hi, all of you folks. Seattle Channel host and producer, Brian Callanan. Hi, Brian. Hey, good to be here, Bill. And you can watch all of us on YouTube, if you like. Just search KUOW Public Radio. Our first story today, the Seattle City Council is complete. This week, the council filled its last vacancy by appointing Chinatown International District activist Tanya Wu. Wu says her top three priorities are housing, homelessness, and public safety. How do we allow people to feel safe and be able to you know, walk to the grocery store without having to worry about their family members? So how will the city accomplish that and all its other priorities and pay for it? Here to tell you is Seattle City Council President Sarah Nelson. Thank you for joining our show today, Council President. Well, thank you very much for having me on. I would like to start with a big picture question. Here you are starting a new term. Uh, You are newly the Council President. You have the votes for a potentially a different direction on the Council. So what's going to change a year from now? What's one thing Seattleites will point to and say, wow, you know what? That new City Council really made a difference when it comes to this? Well, I think one thing you'll see right off the bat, you don't even have to wait a year, is that if you go to chambers, we're all sitting there at the dais, at city council meetings, working together. And so that will, by uh, in and of itself, mm-hmm. produce changes. And so I think that in a year, you will see more officers at SPD and uh, and people circulating more on, on uh, buses and light rail. That is a prediction I'll put forward. Why more on buses and light rail? Well, because people right now are, what I am hearing from employers and also from, from workers is that they would come downtown back in the, on the theme of being in person. That's the general mm. overarching thing I'm talking about, mm-hmm. is that they would come to work more often if they felt that they uh, we're safe at bus stops, on the on transit, et cetera. So I'm really hoping that this council will, will focus on that among many other issues. Well, um, we have a whole panel of journalists. Yeah. I'd like to know how you're going to make uh, <laughs> bus stations and light rail stations safer. Uh, well, anybody else? Well, this is sort of uh, along the lines of what you're talking about, Council President. But specifically, you know, Bill asked a bigger question. What will be noticeable this year that will make downtown uh, more approachable? And there's a difference. Everybody knows this between how it feels in the summer when there's a lot of people out and about and so many tourists and the winter. It feels it it doesn't feel as safe in the winter. So you got to do more than pickleball, don't you think? So so what <laughs> specifically will make the winter time, springtime uh, before the summer feel like the new city council made a difference? Well, First of all, I have to say that we have just gotten off the task of filling this vacancy and we're finally a whole body. So we need to get to work. And the individual committee chairs are developing their their work plans right now. So I'm not going to go in and, and uh, define for my colleagues what they're, they will be doing. I chair 
economic development still. And so we need to bring more businesses downtown, more people on the street, and everything rests on a foundation of, of improved public safety. And you had mentioned earlier in, in talking with Bill about some of the things that are going to change, hopefully, by the end of this year, this idea of bringing in more police officers. I know we heard it a lot from the candidates who were on the campaign trail last year. You've been talking about this a lot. But I know it's been difficult for the Seattle Police Department to get officers. They're not where they need to be. They continue to lose officers. And even with some pretty strong hiring bonuses in place, they're not where they need to be. It's kind of my bottom line. What's going to change there? What can you do to help add to that process such that you can get to that goal of trying to get more officers? Well, you know what? The 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 privilege of being president means that I can develop a committee structure uh, in a different way. And we've got one committee that is focused 100% on public safety, right. not human services, not anything else. And so I'm going to be asking, what's going on with our re- with our recruitment and our hiring process? I'm very invested in those hiring incentives because, as you know, I, had, I started that sort of legislative uh, glide path. Yep. And so what's the matter? We're, we got about 2,000 applications for to be an officer, and our um, our rate of hiring is is really low, lower than the national average per application. Mm. Why is that? And so now, council with a public safety chair who really cares about public safety, and and a whole council that knows they have to deliver to the voters. Yeah. Now we are able to ask and get into the detail. And okay. that will make a difference. I do want to hear from you, David Hyde. Is this right? Because I have something. I want to introduce a piece of audio just about what uh, Council President Nelson was, was saying just there. Uh, if I may, the former, we talked about policing and why hiring is down with the former King County Sheriff, Sue Rar, who's now on the board of the National Policing Institute. Uh, and Sue Rar told us that the effect of the, cause a lot, I've heard a lot of blame that it's the, the media is, 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 dumping on police and the old city council dumping on police. Uh, Sue Rar said the effect of the defund the police movement has been exaggerated. That is probably the smallest factor, even though I think if you ask most cops, I think they believe that it's the bad public sentiment that is causing this problem because that's what it feels like. What do you think? I think that it's both. I mean, where does the bad public sentiment come from? Where does, you know, so but let's not forget the other side of the equation. There's also that they have an expired contract. So it's hard to hire officers. It's hard to actually go, get them through the funnel of application to hiring. And it's hard to keep them because they are leaving for other jurisdictions because we are, um, we still haven't got a new contract. And so that is going to be a, also a priority that we're working on. I guess just a budget question um, as a follow-up, which is how can this new city council do everything that it's promising to do? We're going to cut the budget. Uh, We are reluctant to raise taxes. We're going to hire more police. We're going to hold police more accountable. uh, And we're looking at this $250 million plus budget gap starting in 2025. So how do do you juggle all of those things and and make it work and sort of deliver on those promises? Well – I'm really glad you asked because you know very well that I've always been saying that we have a spending problem, not a revenue problem. And so my mind is exactly where yours is, that we have got to focus on core responsibilities. We take an oath to protect the health, safety, and and well-being of our our constituents. So those police uh, positions are already funded, but the mayor has said in his direction that we're not going to touch public safety 
and uh, then he has some tiered cuts in different departments. I also believe that we should be mindful of, of supporting small businesses and not touching those programs that help generate revenue by uh, promoting economic activity. But how we're going to do everything, we need to look at all of our options on the table. And a What are you going to cut? Yeah. I have an idea. I have an idea. What about uh, the Central City Connector? Uh, and I know it's a capital investment, but eventually it would have an, an operational uh, piece to it. I mean, this thing never penciled out. Danny Westneat of the Seattle Times did a, a hilarious column this week about how few people ride it. And what you keep getting, you folks at the city, is endlessly upward uh, estimates of what this thing will cost. So, of course, nobody actually knows. Why is this still hanging around? It seems like just nobody really wants this, but they think they have to have it. Or I thought businesses here. wanted it. Some businesses do, yeah. It's cute. Let them pay for it. <laughs> Let's let the council Here's president it. weigh in. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. But I also want to get to what are you going to cut. Anyway, okay, good, um, good. so here's the thing. When I took office, I was I thought I was a um, – I was pro streetcar because I thought, of course, you have to connect these two lines. That's a no-brainer, right? Mm -hmm. But then I started hearing from small businesses along Madison and the construction impacts of uh, of the rapid ride line there were really, really harmful. So I started to question the whole thing and then seeing the price tag clearly. We have got to, we've already got a massive transit north-south, you know, project going on. It's called Sound Transit, yeah. the other Might tunnel. Heard of it. Oh. And so, and, and the brand, so we'll have to get into this more, but I, I don't know what the mayor is thinking on this or what the SDOT director is thinking, but I'll tell you one thing is that when you talk about cultural connector, we have cultural connectors already. They're called buses and light rails, and they bring families from out of town into downtown to our venerable arts institutions and let's focus on making uh, people feel safe circulating downtown at night so that we can really support our cultural center. Can we get back to those cuts you were talking about? What do we got? Well, you know, let's really think about what is our whole revenue picture. Because when we look at the the operating deficit, that is looking at general fund dollars. That's not looking at all the special dedicated funds that we have elsewhere. And so we have we have special funds like the sweet and beverage tax fund and right. the uh, jumpstart fund and all of these things. And so I really do think, and those are not restricted by law, like um, the revenue that comes from a uh, a voter approved tax levy. Okay. So everything's on the table, as I say. Just briefly jumping in, though, there was a promise from the Seattle City Council when Jumpstart started, which is that big – that tax on big businesses and payroll, et cetera, that it would go towards affordable housing, that it would go go towards Green New Deal uh, priorities. Are you saying that's going to change? I guess that's the question. I'm saying that that was an old council before a revenue – before a a deficit of $220 million and growing because programs were – were instituted that have ongoing expenses that were used, you know, they were started with one-time funding. And so we really do have to, what do we want to do? Are we going to fire everybody? No. And so we really do have to try to, um, you know, pay attention to what is working, what isn't, protect the workers, and make some really, it's going to, I admit it, it's going to be some hard choices. Well, well here's something that ba- helps balance a budget. Um the when the city council was choosing someone to fill this vacancy, they asked all the finalists, "Would you support new progressive revenue?" If a careful audit showed the city needed more revenue to fill the big budget gap, and the only finalist to answer no was Tanya Wu, 
This week, KUOW's Libby Dankman asked Wu, well, if we don't raise taxes, what would you cut? And Wu said, you start by reducing waste. Finding areas where there may be redundancies or trying to come up with measurements of success so that we are results-based. Um, before we actually go into progressive revenue, I'm not opposed to it. I just would like to go through the exercise before moving on to different options. Okay, so you are open to the potential for exploring progressive revenue. Um, that was, you know, uh, something that came up during the interview process. But but you say you actually are open to that. Yes, I am. I am open to that. And I, I believe that um, having to impose additional taxes should be a last resort. Are you surprised at your new colleagues' openness to new progressive taxes? And are you open to that? You know, I I think the smart thing a politician can do is never say never and never say always. Say frankly. open to it. Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just no, really. I mean, the responsible policymaker must must look at all options and and do what's right in the moment. And so, but uh, what I'm talking about is that the tendency to look toward new revenue before looking at expenses. That is what needs to change. What about just the nature of revenue, though? You know, I was just reading this morning, only Florida now has a more regressive tax code than Washington State, meaning our tax burden falls disproportionately on low-income people. Why not raise progressive taxes and make them revenue neutral? We had a proposal like that in the fall. You know, is that something that you and this this council would consider? Because it's not just any taxes. We're not necessarily talking about raising people's property taxes or sales taxes. We're talking about raising taxes on big business or capital, capital gains, gains tax. Yeah. yeah. What about those ideas as a way of rebalancing the tax burden? Well, first of all, one thing is that we we don't want to get too far out of step with our neighboring jurisdictions because we don't want those any size business to to have well everybody every business has a choice about whether or not they stay or leave we must k- take keep in mind that i think tax reform is better at the state level than at individual city level that i think is one of the points of that article that you're referring to if i'm not wrong well, but you're, so you're asking why – he's asking you why not. Why not uh, – we, we have an overall regressive tax system. Uh, why not make the rich con- continue to pay more? Like I said, everything needs to be examined. But why not think about also at the same time before naturally going there – what can we give up first? See, here's the thing. You don't go out and say, we need more money. What tax are we going to implement? The responsible way is to say, this program works. We need to do more of it, or we should implement a new program for X, Y, or Z need. And what is the tax that has a natural nexus with that program? And I think that people are, are tired yeah, of just I, I get that a, point. The, the question, though, was revenue neutral. If it's revenue neutral, you're not talking about going out and raising a bunch of new revenue. You're talking about rebalancing the tax code. Wasn't there a revenue capital gains tax proposal just last fall? What about that? So but I think that's a little different. That would have been revenue neutral only if – so they were talking about getting rid of a utility tax right, and then the water instituting yeah. – yeah. Can, instituting, I, can I just uh, And that would have here? only generated $7 million also. So that wasn't going to get us to where we needed to go. I, I just want to interject and ask you, you know, the city doesn't operate in a vacuum – nor a vacuum cleaner, just, but, you know, the state has all these debates coming about gas taxes and capital gains tax. I know it's a, a later topic uh, for us today, but, you know, if, if the new city council comes in and just goes right to raising taxes, where does that 
put the the message of hey we're back to basics and we're doing fundamentals and we're doing quote good governance and accountability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you're saying you want you want the taxes that are working. I think basically is what you said. And and a few minutes ago, you I thought you were suggesting that well we could take some of that jumpstart payroll tax revenue and not necessarily spend it on, for example, affordable housing. So are you saying that affordable housing is not a worthy, useful, effective investment in helping people no, find I would a place not to say live? That. No, of course not. Of course not. And we just tripled the housing levy. So there is a new levy that we just um, that we just instituted, and we've got the mandatory housing affordability. And I am not going to say what we're going to do or what not we're going to do because we need to talk to the mayor and talk about what is what is their appetite, what direction do they want to go, et cetera. So this is a long conversation. We better start having it now, but we can't just jump to one conclusion or another. That's fair. I guess just to be just to put it down to brass tacks, it sounds like you want to look towards some cuts first. I think I understand that part. But do you think you can cut your way out of – $229 million. Do you think that additional revenue might have to be a piece of the puzzle? I'm talking about, let's see how much money we've got in all these different funds and what are the programs that uh, that we abs- that that we have to keep funding, et cetera. How can, we, how can we work with the resources that we've got? And if we can't, then we answer that question. That's all I'm saying. Okay. And so also, um, there are, as we've hinted at, quite a few voter-approved levies. It's not like the voters hold back on housing, on transportation, on parks. They, they vote to tax themselves they pretty often. They vote to tax yeah. themselves. And oh, so you're talking about the statewide measures? No. City, no. City, no, city measures. City yeah, yeah. measures. We've got the transportation yeah. levy. Yeah. Right. Okay. So you have, yeah. you have revenue streams that are quite generous from the, from the taxpayers. But you also have those taxpayers telling you over and over, yeah, where we are willing to raise taxes on ourselves because they keep doing it. Yeah. And then we've got the family and education, which is now the preschool promise levy, whatever. Yeah. We have that conversation at the same time that we have people are getting displaced from their homes, yeah. people on fixed incomes, not uh, property taxes are getting so high, people are being pushed out. So we've got two things going on and where the that balance is. It's it's the voters' decision. Can I circle back to downtown and drug policy, which was mm-hmm. it's a big topic for you. It was a big topic in the fall election, and I kind of was wondering if you could just kind of characterize your approach in relation to other ideas about drug policy. For example, some drug experts, as you know, say uh, treatment should always be voluntary. We shouldn't. You know, use arrests as a tool for getting people into treatment. Um, and I know that you don't entirely agree with that, but if you could say a little bit more about you know your perspective, that's kind of what I'm curious about. Sure. So I I lean into this topic by saying, if it's not working, we need to do something different, and we need to entertain other approaches. And so. I think making a big blanket statement that arresting people doesn't work. I went to rehab. And you wouldn't believe how many people in there say that actually that a law enforcement intervention was the thing that made a difference. And who knows, maybe that person uh, relapsed and is and is still using. But my point is that we can't just – fentanyl is a different kind of drug. Meeting people where they're at and not helping them, not encouraging them to get into treatment, it it's just not working. Look at our overdose death rate. So I, what I'm saying is that we have to have more 
options on the table to uh, to provide people access to. Another view, just one follow-up, that we heard in council meetings last year that you were a part of was an idea, a kind of libertarian idea, that drug use is a, is a personal choice. Um, you know, it's about bodily autonomy. There was a person quoted in response to one of your questions actually saying, for some people, abstinence is not a priority. You were asking a question about... Um, a city program that provides pipes for people to smoke meth and fentanyl, basically. Um, so my my question is, how do how does your perspective sort of differ from that one, uh, which is another, you know, uh, perspective that we hear in the city and and may reflect some of the changes that we're going to see uh, in the coming year. Right. I remember that meeting, and and I was asking, I was talking about what is harm reduction, what harm is being reduced by distributing those materials, and how do you measure the uh, the return on that investment? That's what I was asking. And are people actually, are they using that interaction of, of giving out those supplies to get people into treatment, and do you track how many people are getting into treatment? So bodily autonomy, I can understand that. But what we're seeing is that there are impacts on, the you know, addiction in many cases, does fuel the uh, street crime that we're seeing. And we're also seeing that there's a, there's a connection between gun violence and some of the drug, you know, the higher-up drug, uh, drug dealing. But can police stop violence and theft with, and still letting people, let people have that bodily autonomy, as mm-hmm. David put it? To the well, ex- go on. Oh, sorry. No, Dave, uh, do your answer, and then I'll ask you something. Thank you. I think that... If the public health must focus on now changing behavior, this is and, – and so if we are going to be investing public dollars into programs, we need to make sure that they are actually uh, reducing death rates, reducing overdoses in general. There is – I'm not even going to go to the, oh, there's a societal cost, et cetera. People are dying on our streets, and it's an emergency. And I just I'm, – I'm getting – I'm losing patience with the autonomy. I recognize that, and I respect that point of view. But I just – I'm not there when it comes to not <laughs> not doing anything different. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you earlier, but we've been talking much of this time about downtown public safety, and I'm surprised um, at the beginning we asked what will be noticeably different. The the hard-fought public drug use laws mm-hmm. from last year, are they making a difference? Will they make a difference? That's something that people really complain about when they say, well, I'm not going to go downtown if I don't have to. This is the change that allows right. the city to oh. prosecute. Yeah, I'm, I'm telling listeners <laughs> oh, okay, who yeah, not, not <laughs> filling you in. Uh, yes, yeah, so, so the, the city can now prosecute uh, drug possession and use as a, as a misdemeanor in the city of Seattle. So right. The, yeah. So the question is, why isn't that something that we should be looking to make a difference in the way downtown is lively, lively, liveliness, if I could say that word, uh, small business success and feelings of their employees are safer, that kind of thing? Oh, believe me, it is very much something that we should be looking at. And the, what I was saying before about having a, a public safety chair that will be open to bringing in departmental people, I believe getting a report from the city attorney – I, I want to know also how many arrests, how many people have been diverted? Did the people that were diverted go, get into treatment? 
Were there cases where charges were filed? That's all information that I want to know as well, because what I'm also hearing is they're not seeing much difference out there. Right. With, with, even with this new ordinance right. in place, it doesn't sound like there's a lot of that. What, what needs to change there? What's, what's your thought there? Well, I'm not going to get to put myself in the place of my colleagues, okay. but, you know, and I'm not going to. First of all, we need information. And I believe that, that we need to fix things if, if they're not working legislatively. Okay, I'm looking. I'm watching the clock because we're going to cover other the rest of the week's news in the second half of this show. But uh, so letting us know where uh, time is running out with the council president Sarah Nelson, Seattle City Council. Uh, is there? Uh, I always have questions. Is there something else that my panel really wants to get to? Well, here's one. Uh, a lot of the new city council members were uh, supported by business, you know, campaign contributions from. The business lobby, which is how part of how politics happens. Uh, a prominent lobbyist emailed donors saying, quote, the independent campaign expenditure success earned you the right to let the council know not to offer the left the consolation prize of this council seat, end quote. And here's a reaction from council member Tammy Morales, who said the council should have focused on finding someone who could deliver for the entire city. But instead, it did become about big business telling donors that they earned the right to tell this council who to choose. And that is deeply problematic and it is anti-democratic. Seattle voters have been clear over and over again that they reject the notion that special interests have a right to buy our elections. Anti-democratic, special interest buying elections. What's your reaction, Council President? My reaction is that we ran a clean, fair, and transparent process. There was nobody that was – there was no there was no pressure from uh, – during this appointment-filling process, there was no pressure. And I would say that that was an argument that was levied on the, on the campaign trail as well. And so I am trying to move beyond this us versus them, business versus labor, and just – and get beyond that. But it's, it's natural that that noise will enter into this process because how could it not? So I was at City Hall yesterday interviewing four of the five new council members for uh, a program I'm working on. And one thing I picked up on that was that, you know, yes, Tammy Morales, this was her opponent uh, during the fall campaign. You're talking about Tanya Wu, the Tanya new Wu. councilor ran against and narrowly lost to Tammy Morales. Thank you so much. In District that. 2. Thank you. Um, but what I picked up from these council members, and they're new and they don't want to say anything, you know, that's that's like that. But it felt to me uh, like Tammy Morales was sort of with that comment and sort of trying to make this a bad process. Um, the devices the divisiveness seemed old school. Like mm -hmm. these folks were not yeah. buying it. These folks were like, hey, we all like each other. We all get along. We all really kind of don't want to go there. We're here to go forward and not look back and not be devices with each other. Well, she's calling it unfair, whether you agree with her or not. Oh. She's not saying, you know, how dare you have someone who disagrees with me on the count? Maybe she did. I don't know. But, but no, she I didn't. mean, t on, her, on her point... Uh, she was she was saying she didn't think the process was a fair one, and Council President well, said it absolutely was fair. Did did you? It have was absolutely fair in terms of we 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 ran a process by the book, and whatever was going on outside of City Hall, that was the, that was its own thing. But here's what I'll say: It's time to rise above that. When you when when one is elected, one leaves the politics of the campaign trail behind. And, and, and gets down to do the work. And it's a small town, and we're going to be, you know, I've worked alongside opponents in the past. And so what really matters is that we go forward. 
Just because this is week in review, I got to go backwards just yeah. for okay. a couple. Uh, well, two questions. One, would you have worded that a little bit differently than Tim Cease did in that? Uh, <laughs> I don't even do, don't even ask. You're not going to answer that. Okay. In the, in the place uh, earned of, you the right to let the council Tim know. Tim Cease is oh, the, form, was... is the <coughs> former. I'm helping Sorry. listeners. Yeah. Is the former deputy mayor now business lobbyist who <coughs> made that uh, sent that email to yeah. the council. My, my other question to is to the donors. Yes. I I watched the the forums as i'm sure we all did um and and you you obviously did um great questions actually by some of the council members i thought of the candidates that Mm -hmm. was i was like wow we should you know study up for the next debate i was amazed (laughs) these are questions they didn't want to answer during the debates but they Mm -hmm. were were happy to ask of these candidates (laughs) did you feel like tanya Wu got this because her answers to those questions uh in the forum you know and her applicant like that she won it that way that was part of it, maybe. But here's the thing. These council members spent a year campaigning alongside Tanya Wu. And she was the, of any of those eight finalists, she was the most vetted because she appeared at all these different uh, forums and you know questionnaires published. And so people knew where she stood on the issues that we were going to be dealing with right now. And so I think that that was more uh, informative than mm. um, and more determinative of their choice. So than, that sense of collaboration that this is this is going to be a collaborative colleague. People basically. knew where she stood on things. Right. Yeah. Okay. I, well, that brings us back. That brings us to where we started, which was this week's development of a. You have your full lineup. I forget how you put it, but you've got your team. The city council <laughs> is in place, and you are the president of this new council. And Sarah Nelson, I hope you'll come back and and. And update us on what the council's doing and take more questions and all that good stuff. I would love to. This was fun. Thank okay. you. City Council President Sarah Nelson, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, on, sir. On KUOW's Week in Review, we're going to take a short break. We're going to talk Boeing. We're going to talk other news of the week as we do. We'll be right back. Support comes from Pacific Science Center, working to inspire the next generation of scientists and increase access to STEM education statewide through digital discovery workshops, science on wheels, and summer camps. More ways to support these efforts at PACSci.org. Support comes from Gather Pottery, hosting ceramicist Sarah Anderson, teaching a weekend sgraffito workshop for all levels, May 18th and 19th at Gather Pottery in Interbay. Learn more at gatherpottery.com. You're listening to KUOW's Week in Review. I don't know, you might be watching us, too, on YouTube. You just search KUOW Public Radio there. But in any case, my panel of local journalists this week, political analyst Joni Balter, Seattle Channel's Brian Callanan, KUOW's David Hyde. More than 10,000 workers at Boeing's Renton factory stopped work yesterday to focus on quality control. Their supervisor told them, ladies and gentlemen, this is not a drill. That is a drill. Got it? Oh, oh boy. Okay. Oh, that's nicely done. Right. Yeah. This, awesome. Old school radio. That's yeah. right. This uh, little pause in production happened because a door plug blew out of an Alaska Airlines jet, as you know, outside of Portland. This week, the Seattle Times quoted an anonymous source saying, don't blame Spirit Aerosystems or any other Boeing contractor. That door plug had been removed for repairs, and Boeing mechanics in Renton reinstalled it wrong. Reaction? not only reinstalled it wrong, but then there was not enough sufficient um, oversight uh, review of how they installed it. So this is amazing. I have to tell you all, I feel really sad about Boeing these days. Um, 
there's something wrong in the company's DNA. If there's crashes, you have uh, the door plug issue. Um, it just makes me feel sort of sad or embarrassed for the culture of Seattle. Boeing Boeing was gold standard. Remember that phrase? If it ain't Boeing, it ain't I going. Am, not I going. ain't going. Yeah. Yeah. No. So it, you know, and it just reflects on Seattle in this way where this was just, you know, this sort of geek engineering culture yes. here. Yeah. We know how to do it right. Find a better way. It was the employer that, yep. that shaped this region. Yep. If if you don't work for them, you know somebody who does. I mean, I think yeah. it connects with so many other jobs around here too. By the way, as I always have to disclose, including my wife and uh, my dad and my sister, and I'm you know I've oh, worked wow. for a while. This is yeah. what kind I'm saying, Boeing Mr. Guy. Boeing, kind of yeah. a Boeing guy. Yeah. yeah. It, so I, I I think it's it definitely reflects badly on Boeing, and it is something that I don't know if it could completely bring them down, but I mean this is something where they're delaying the delivery of jets. I mean the FAA is really cracking down on this, and that and when they talk about we're going to have these Max nines, they're going to be all inspected and ready to go within a week. I'm like. Hmm. Really? Can we pump the brakes on that a little bit? I, I, I have concerns about it for sure. I think their customers are pumping yeah. the brakes on that and saying, you know, we're not going to order. You have to do more inspections. Yeah. We're going to do our own inspe- inspections. Yep. You've mm-hmm. got to get your act together. And they really do. And yeah. so what is it about the culture, the, the culture of safety that, that was so predominant for so long? What has changed? I really want to know. Dominic sure. Gates, in his reporting in the oh, Seattle Times, I'm just a fantastic uh, you know, breaking story about this hints at that, right? That 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 there's well, well, he doesn't he doesn't say why, but he explain he explains that there is this quality control problem happening at Boeing, and yeah, I'm really curious the way you frame it, Joni, about this kind of cultural transition over time and kind of what's going on. Is it COVID? Is there something about the job market right now? And uh, is it management? Like what? You know, obviously it's management, but what what exactly is going on? And then seeing these airlines, uh, you know, canceling orders. Uh, myself having to book a ticket for my spouse, and she, everybody's and we're doing going, this. Everybody's okay, doing anything this. but the seven thirty seven max. She got on a seven thirty seven, but not the max. You right. can do that. Uh, at some, do uh, there's a travel company, Kayak, now lets you filter out whatever planes you want. We we went and looked at which plane it would be before. Yeah. You know, and guess what? As careful as you are, they can swap the planes swap out the planes. as, as yeah. time goes on because, you know, weather and the rest of it. It happens. And you talk about the different airlines and what they're doing. I just thought it was interesting. I think that Alaska has a, a nuanced approach to this. I know that they have said, well, we're Boeing, we're sticking with you. But uh, I think they're also asking Boeing to be held accountable for it. When I saw that headline there where Alaska is asking Boeing for $150 million worth of damages because of this. That's the opening request. That's what I'm saying. As far as I can tell. But this is where it gets real. I mean, and yeah. that's where the dollars are attached to it. And what happens to Alaska with this? They're just starting to expand with that Hawaiian Airlines acquisition. Okay. And I, I think the fallout, and you mentioned this at the top of the show, Bill, this idea that there's a lot of fallout for Alaska. Saturday, Saturday Night Live uh, notwithstanding, I, there's a lot of fallout for uh, Alaska going on here. I don't know if that's completely fair, but that's what's happening. And I think that's going to impact the airline a lot. Fallout. For those yeah. listeners, yeah, don't fall out. Okay, yeah. don't For do that. Those <laughs> listeners, <laughs> that was good. The listeners who have not heard the, or seen the Seattle uh, the, the Saturday Night Live sketch, uh, this, is, this is most of it. I slightly shortened it, but uh, this is so unfair to Alaska Airlines. I'm playing so it anyway. Sorry. So and yet, Sorry. And yet, here it is. Here at Alaska, safety is our number one concern. But you got to admit, look pretty cool. Plane flying around, no door. You know, everyone's screaming, cell phones whipping out into the sky. It was awesome. That's why our new slogan is, Alaska Airlines, you didn't die, and you got a cool story. On other airlines, you can watch movies, but on Alaska, 
You're in the movie. And if you think Alaska the state is cold, just wait till our plane's roof rips off. Since the incident, we're starting to make some changes. You know those bolts that, like, hold the plane together? We're going to go ahead and tighten some of those. When people ask me where the emergency exits are, I'm like, there, there, and in 10 minutes, probably there. <laughs> so fly Alaska. Fly Alaska. We're the same airline where a pilot tried to turn off the engine mid-flight while on mushrooms. And now we're so proud to say that's our second worst flight. Alaska Airlines, still better than Spirit. So unfair on so many levels. That wasn't even the pilot of the plane. That was some off-duty pilot. And and as I said at the very top, the, this uh, at least this whistleblower um, is saying, uh, this is not Alaska Airlines' fault. Yeah. It's, right. It's a Boeing problem. Not, it's not even a Boeing contractor problem. So I'm sorry, Alaska Airlines, for rip- I will not play that sketch again. Well, there's so much brand trashing that's going on uh, for Boeing and for Alaska. You know, the, the one, the, the mushroom guy, by the way, probably does uh, ascribe to Alaska. That's that's not a airplane part problem. Uh, that probably does. But the rest of it, I feel the same way. It's so unfair to Alaska. I mean, they buy these planes. You know, they are usually quite proud of these planes. And look what is happening to both companies in terms of reputation. These are not easily regained. Excuse me. Just on Alaska, the CEO told NBC News that loose bolts have been found on the door plugs of several other grounded Max 9s. Right. It makes you mad. Um, It makes you mad that we're finding issues like that on brand new airplanes. Uh, when I, I when I moved here in the 2000s, I remember these books being written about Boeing, this incredibly innovative company. They've got the Dreamliner. They're like uh, they were being compared to Toyota. There's this globalization of the industry, and they're incredible innovators. And so they were cutting costs and basically creating this incredible plane, the the Dreamliner. Um, but yeah. I, well, I, I, no, I was like, say, what happened? I remember those early two thousands. I'm not going to say it's the beginning of the end, but I remember reporting down at Boeing Field when basically that plane took off and a bunch of CEO executive types were on it. Remember when they moved the headquarters of Boeing there? I feel like that was the beginning of the you know kind of parceling out of what Boeing is all about and not having it centralized here, having it in different states, having it in other parts of the world. I, I think that's a piece mm-hmm. of it. I think that's what a lot of old-time Boeing people but would tell a you. Lot but of it was celebrated, point, but was it the beginning of the end? No, but a lot of people will point to that moment when Boeing's headquarters moved to Chicago right? and sort of changing the culture that way to going to a place that believed in, why'd they want to be in Chicago? Closer to lobbying of D.C. Yeah. And what does that mean? oh, we're really getting better with our bottom line, meaning we're cutting things. And we all thought, hoped, whatever it was, that didn't mean cutting safety, checking the bolts, checking the planes uh, consistently and regularly. And just, I mean, you know, think about how outrageous it is that Boeing recently asked to be exempted from a, a safety rule on a smaller plane. I mean, Boeing is... This, to- the, this is the de-icing system... That they said, uh, oh, the pilots know how to handle it. Yeah, that. the pilots know how to handle it, so can we please be exempted? And the point here is, of course you can't be exempted from anything safety now. Yeah. You're not going to be exempted. You know, it was little noticed that that story came out like two days before uh, 
the the window door whatever blew out the plug, and yeah. the plug as we call it here and um <laughs> so i mean they need to revamp as we know and there will be so many lawsuits and so much sort of strain on the workers and that's what i feel sad about in I fact really there's a lawsuit claiming that boeing and alaska airlines were negligent because alaska knew about cabin pressurization issues with this particular plane from three weeks ago so they stopped flying it over the ocean but they kept flying it over land. I don't know the merits of that. I mean, there's so much more. So uh, we said after the fatal crashes in you know, Indian Ocean and, and, and the other one that, well, this could be, Boeing does a lot of things fantastically and wonderfully. And this could all, this could be a very different picture six months or a year or five years from now. Uh, unfortunately, we're not having that conversation, but we don't, you know, we don't know what, what the safety record is going to be in the future. Uh, but I think it's fair to take this local gem to task for now for what I, here, what, I have a quote here. This uh, air whistleblower described Boeing 737 production system as, quote, a rambling, shambling disaster waiting to happen. Entirely possible. And when you think about where the dollars and the attention of Boeing has to go now, which is on these different legal challenges, it's certainly not going to be on plane production because the FAA, I believe, said earlier yeah. this week, you can't raise your production rates until we have quality control absolutely assured here. What's it going to look like? How long is that going to take? Yep. No one's going to want to go short on that. And then when you hear uh, there's going to be Senate panels, I mean, this is yeah. this is something that's going to have a huge impact on the on the company. I just don't know how big, but it's it seems like we're just at the start of it now. All right. Well, then let's revisit it on future shows on KUOW's Week in Review. We need to take another break, and then we'll whip through some of the stories we haven't yet had a chance to touch on and leave you with something to smile about. So come right back. Bill Radke here, host of Week in Review. I'm here with our local journalist, KUOW's David Hyde, political analyst Joni Balter, Seattle Channel's Brian Callanan. We have discussed uh, which way Seattle and which way Boeing. Here are a few other items of the week we haven't mentioned yet. Uh, in brief, drug maker Johnson & Johnson will pay Washington State $150 million because of its role in opioid addictions. The money will go to substance abuse programs and expanded access to overdose reversal drugs. Microsoft reached a market valuation of $3 trillion for the first time this week, second only to Apple. Much credit going to Microsoft's big role in artificial intelligence. Their stock is now above 400 bucks a share, unlike yeah. Boeing's. Yeah, five straight. <laughs> I, I think it might be at six straight days for the S&P 500 hitting record highs this week. So yep. there's some action going on. Here's something stock investors tend to like. Microsoft just announced it's laying off 8% of its gaming division after buying the gaming giant Activision Blizzard a few months ago. In other layoff news, RAI said it's laying off more than 350 people, including 200 at its headquarters in Kent. The CEO said revenue in the outdoor retail industry is in decline. Uh, not, out of, uh, not out of business is uh, Nikki Haley still in the fight, even though she lost another primary vote to Donald Trump in New Hampshire. Why am I bringing this up on a local program? Politics reporter David Hyde, you told us this week some Washington Republicans want Haley to drop out, but certainly not all of them. Yeah, well, the Nikki Haley campaign here in Washington State. <laughs> yeah. uh, I spoke campaign. to Vice Chair Paul Hess, who says we're going to wait and see what happens in South Carolina. It's her home state. She beat a bunch of good old boys the last time down there. So let's see what can happen this time. Pollsters and experts and David Axelrod and all the people on TV think that this is an impossibility. But I think one of the things that they're 
thinking about still or hoping that she stays in for is just the possibility that maybe Trump stumbles. Maybe there are That's some exactly legal right. problems. That's you know, exactly right. Something happens. If she's still in it, uh, you never know. And and some people have even been bringing up the possibility of a brokered convention, which we haven't had since mm. the 1950s. Mm, but, yeah. you know, it's these we're living in unusual times. Um, meaning, the other, meaning some people in the, the party would be split enough to say, well, wait a minute, we're not necessarily well, going to. The way it up. works, right, is we elect 40-some delegates from this state and other states get their delegates and they all show up. And on the first ballot, you have to vote how your voters voted in the primary. On the second and third ballot, you can vote however you want. Oh. So, you know, if you have the the delegates get to decide at that point if, you know, again, hasn't happened since the 1950s. <laughs> like, so uh, it's it's a lot to hope for. The other point. And Donald Trump will personally, personally, physically threaten any delegates who will I, vote otherwise. Yeah. I would assume. Um, if not Nikki Haley, right? Right. Yeah. Um, I was just going to say the other point that Hess made was having Haley at the top of the ticket would be a huge boon for Republicans in this state who haven't won the governorship in 40-some years, Mm -hmm. have a heck of a time winning statewide office. And, you know, some of these King County Republicans especially think that Trump is a problem for them and that the brand is is well, is not a so problem good. is is kind of <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> cutting a, a little yeah. bit of an understatement here because you know this is a two to one uh, anti Trump state and these voters you know they want to have a say and also there's the added benefit and I I've seen this analysis in a couple places if if Nikki Haley stays in Donald Trump has to keep reacting he seems to be mm. having a few memory problems and word syntax sentence all that and by her staying in he has to address it and so you reveal more and him bashing a woman and bashing someone of color etc there's all kinds bashing of things her that dress which yeah. you yeah. know was i thought was really pretty so yeah. there. <laughs> well here's something that i've heard might help republicans in november that uh there are six republican-backed state initiatives that got enough signatures to move forward, and they'll probably be on the November ballot. And David, there's one big donor behind all six of them. Yeah, I was interested. I don't know if you caught this story about Brian Haywood. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a money manager, originally from California, moved here about ten years ago, and moved here to flee taxes. He's uh, very Jeff, Jeff Bezos-like in that sense, mm-hmm. and uh, doesn't want to see that happen here. You know, we don't want to go the way of California. We want to have the most regressive tax code in the country, right. next to Florida. Uh, so he's spending seven million dollars on these six initiatives of his own money. Is the last I read, anyway. Three of which are are essentially anti-tax initiatives, including the capital gains. Yeah, trying to roll back capital gains, the one on long-term care was just certified yesterday to push back on that. I was just interested in this, David, this whole idea of, okay, you got these three measures that are all about taxes. I get that from that perspective. Yeah. But when you lump in these other three issues that are on this let's go Washington docket, if you want to call it that, we're talking about uh, the situation with police pursuits, uh, long-term care is another one too, and sex ed for kids. Putting those two together, what does that do? What kind of dynamic does that create? I just wonder, is it going to turn voters well, it has off? To, you or mean on? for the for yeah. the fall? Just what yeah. happens in Washington, and how to, how does it affect other down ballot races? Yeah, or we didn't mention if, the climate. We didn't just we in our list. I don't think we me, said the right. climate. The most important is the one on climate change, exactly. rolling back excuse the carbon me. tax. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you know what it's all about? It has something to do with turnout because if you bring people to talk about all these different topics, presumably if they like what what uh, Brian Haywood's offering offering. 
they'll they'll vote for the other candidates. That's right. that's part and, of the charm of it. And it's not like we've never seen this act before around here, yeah. haven't we? His name was Tim Iman. Yeah. He used to do it, you know, an like a Pez dispenser of initiatives. He would put one or two a year, sometimes many. But I also think we have to. He address- used to hold that chair. I was going to say, uh, yeah. Well, right. the chair, the chair didn't last long in whatever office store that was yeah, right. when Iman was around. But you know, I think voters are also going to ask themselves: Do we really want a wealthy Californian who came here to avoid taxes there to come here and change? That is I so don't know, divisive and to, nativist and I elitist. I agree with all everything you just said. Xenophobic. But a change, mm. change two or three or four years of legislating. You know, what about the mechanism? It basically pulls the plug on a lot of pieces of the of the Inslee legacy, for sure, and climate change being the top of the list. Yeah, the I, I'm just I'm just interested to see how that dynamic plays out. Again, it's a presidential election year, so there will be a ton of people at the polls, unlike last year, and there will be a ton of, of initiatives, with all, which always bring people out. Zero last year in November. We're going to have six and possibly more uh, this year. Yeah. He's, he's, I, I looked up some of his other contributions, oh, yeah. and he's kind of an old-school Republican, uh, you know, anti-tax. He supports Raul Garcia for Senate, mm-hmm. who Raul is a self-described moderate Republican, mm-hmm. you know, running against um, against Senator Cantwell. Right. Um, you know, and, and so it's the three anti-tax measures. But even some of those old— so Not a old, mag- MAGA guy, apparently. I, yeah, he, I don't see any Trump donations in there. I think he's a DeSantis guy this year. So— um, that's the kind of that that's, the, that's yeah. the kind yeah. of California Republican we're, we're talking about. Okay. Mm-hmm. And finally, uh, I just wanted to, Brian, you said that you didn't like the "Let's Go Washington" name. Yeah, it's just like "Let's Go Washington," "Let's Go Brandon." You can't even say "Let's Go" anymore yeah. without being. <laughs> so do you have a do you have a, t- a name for him that you can lend to him? I'm just going to say, get out and vote, people. You know what's on the docket here. We're, we're telling you about it. You figure it out. <laughs> uh, we are a couple of minutes left till the end of this program, I, and I always want to hear what made somebody smile this week. I'll be happy to tell you what made me smile was the. Uh, return to evening TV, Mondays only, of comedian John Stewart, mm-hmm. uh, back on The Daily Show. Comedy Central. Comedy mm-hmm. Central, thank you for that. You know, and as I just mentioned, here in Washington, we are a two-to-one anti-Trump state, and we are going to need some humor here while we do while we wrap up the big dark. Mm. Uh, it's tough. It's tough out there. You hear the same stuff you heard last time from Donald Trump and the same like repeat of the election. Biden, you're going to need a comedic break. Okay, and he shall provide one. John Stewart. Yeah, I had I had a just a personal issue this week with the fact that the guy that they hired for the Tennessee Titans uh, football <laughs> head coaching job. His name is Brian Callahan, oh. not Callahan. So many people have been calling me saying, hey, congrats on the new job. And I'm like, no, no, no. That's <laughs> not so, what it is. Si- since we're on football, yeah. quickly, my smile is that the Huskies head football coach quit to go somewhere else. So a bunch of star players quit the Huskies as well. And from what I've read, most of them are from other states. And so maybe the only players left are going to be here because they grew up here or they just love floating bridges or whatever it is. <laughs> right. Either way, who doesn't want their local team to be more local? So that made me smile. Mine's football-related, too. Oh, I'm going to yeah. make it that. So uh, Jurgen Klopp oh, is help. leaving Liverpool Football Club in oh, England nice. uh, next year. He's just announced. That, and that's so he's, a, he's an amazing coach <laughs> and very uh, kind of lovable, sort of huggy kind of a guy. And so I was thinking the Seahawks could consider doing a reverse Ted Lasso. Love it. Bring Ooh, him on. Wow, Love is- it. And, uh, and, and see what happens. I mean, it'll be popular. So if Jody Allen's listening, that's my uh, oh. smile for the week. Also, I'm an Arsenal fan, so the fact that he's leaving 
is yeah. good for our That's smoke problem. awesome. Jody Allen, I would watch that series. Me too. Make it happen. Yeah. <laughs> I would. How's that not going to work? Right. Yeah, right. Okay, right. KOW politics and football reporter David Hyde, political <laughs> analyst, contributing columnist Joni Balter, Seattle Channel host and producer Brian Callanan. Thank you all for being our show this week. Thanks, thank Bill. You. Thanks, Bill. And thank you to the Seattle City Council president who joined us earlier, Sarah Nelson. And thank you to our producer, Kevin Kniestet, and Bernard Wellette, making the show sound great, running the board. I'm Bill Radke. We'll see you again next week.